Last week, uh, the passage that we looked at kind of surfaced the first why question uh, in a series of why questions that we're going to come across in the next chapter or so in the Gospel of Mark. So last week, the passage surfaced the first why question that the religious leaders had uh, regarding Jesus' authority. And last week, the question was this, why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Mark is going to show, he showed last week when you looked at the passage, that Jesus wasn't just speaking on behalf of God, he was speaking as God. And so the answer to that why question that we saw last week was this, Jesus can speak like that because he is God. And when you express faith in him, in his ability to change your life, instead of just being skeptical about his power, then your life will actually change too, so you can take him at his word. We looked at two types of people, skeptical people, and then people that actually express their faith in who Jesus was and his ability to actually change their life. And you can be one of two people, skeptical, or you can be someone who's filled with faith in Jesus' ability to actually change your life. So that was the question we looked at last week. And the next why question we find in the Gospel of Mark is found in our text today. And it's this question, why does he, Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a massive question. Why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's actually going to take two sermons to teach and apply this passage to its fullness. The religious leaders in Jesus' time had created a false distinction between who they considered everybody else to be. Everybody else was sinfully sick sinners and how they viewed themselves rigidly, ritualistic, religious, and righteous So either you're a sinfully sick sinner or you're like us, you're rigidly religious and righteous. And they created this false distinction. And Jesus is going to annihilate that false line of distinction. And he's going to break down that barrier that we so often are tempted to construct in order to self-justify ourselves. We like to think of everyone else as sick while we're the only ones who are healthy, or to turn it around, we think we're the healthy ones and everyone else is sick. And the truth is, is that we're all sick. (laughs) We're all sick. And so Jesus is going to demolish that false distinction in this passage, and he does so in a lovely way. And so today we're only going to look at the first half of this passage. I know we're taking it slow, but there's so much to see. We're only going to look at the first half of this passage and make a personal application point today, and next time we're in the passage, in a few weeks, I want to share how I think our church ought to respond to this message in a corporate way. But before I do any of that, I want to tell you a story about my childhood. And I hope to tell you the story so that I can illustrate a point of application that will make next time that we're in this passage of Scripture. So most of you know this, like I grew up in Kansas, Anybody watch the Chiefs game last night where it was like negative seven or eight degrees? Like that looked brutal, right? But go Chiefs, all right? 
Um, so I grew up in a small town in central Kansas, and uh, there's McPherson. If you could zoom in a little bit, I grew up on the outskirts of that small town in a, in a house out here, and you can zoom in a little bit more. So you could see, okay, this is a big, massive wheat field that I would go play in. How fun is that? Who wants to go live in Kansas, right? That's what you got to do for fun. Um, so we lived out on Highway 56, a little ways outside of town, and if you zoom in a little bit more, I think, okay, that's my house, okay, uh, that I grew up in. We had like an acre and a half back here, a uh, train track that, you know, we used to walk on the train track. That was fun, too. All right, um, this is where I set my backyard on fire with a firework. Um, it used to be a garden there. Now it looks like just a fire pit. And, uh, but this is, uh, yeah, so this is the street view. Go to the next one, I think. Um, so, yeah, this is where I won so many football games competing against myself and my imagination, wow. right? <laughs> this, I, honestly, I used to pretend I was Steve Largent. Can you believe that? Do you know who Steve Largent is, right? Look at that guy, right? Look at that. Look at those socks. Look at those jams. I don't know about this form. These football pads might have been just like extra clothes that I shoved under that shirt. All right, but that, that's me. Right? I actually could throw that football really far. Um, what's the next one? This, imagine me. Okay, so this is who you hired as the senior pastor of your church. Look at those shorts, the red tank top, the gold chain. I don't, these glasses, maybe they're coming back in style, you know, I don't know. And, and someone was asking me this morning, what is that? I was like, that's a dead bird. It's just a dead bird. I just killed birds, I guess, or pick them up. I can't remember, but, um, so that's me. Okay, well, let's go on to the next one. Okay, so <laughs> enough about my childhood, but that's, that's your senior pastor, all right, dead bird picker-upper, pretend football guy in the front yard. Um, but growing up in that small town of Kansas, we lived on that acre and a half. And the reason I tell you that is because I want to tell you what I would do on this backyard sometimes. My dad worked as a draftsman for an oil refinery, but he also had prior uh, experience of serving in the American Armed Forces. He was in um, the Air Force, and he was a mechanic, and he was really, really good at fixing things. And he saw an opportunity to have a side business of fixing golf carts for people. And I'm pretty sure he was the only one in central Kansas, like in the center of this county, right, that had a business like this. And so as word got out, he did a really, and he did really good work by providing a meaningful service to people. He got busier and busier, and he ended up building this little detached garage, and that's kind of where he ran his side business out of. He ended up building that little detached garage and would spend a lot of his time out there working and fixing golf carts. People would come to him with something that needed to be fixed, and then he would fix it. Sometimes he would have to weld things, sometimes he'd have to rebuild things or overhaul things, but if it came his way, whether it was an easy go or whether it was a club car or whether it was a Columbia car, it didn't matter what kind, whether it was an electric vehicle or a golf cart or a gas one, he would fix it over time. Many times, I got to be the one who would test drive them around the backyard to make sure that they were really fixed. It's one thing to say that they're fixed, and then to prove that they're fixed, they need to be driven around, and so what better opportunity for an 8 to 10-year-old boy to do that with somebody else's stuff, right, in that backyard? Sometimes the fix was relatively simple, and instead of people bringing their carts to my dad, my dad would go to one of three golf courses in the county, and sometimes I would accompany him and just run around the shed or do random mischievous things while he was working and I was unaccompanied, all right? 
And in the surrounding area of our town, there were really two types of golf courses. There was actually three golf courses, but two types. There was two public courses and one private course. So let me tell you about the difference between the two. Rolling Acres, for instance, was one of those public courses. Anybody and everybody could, tea, could schedule a tea time or just show up and you know, spend the next few hours being frustrated. That's what golf is. You spend money to go be frustrated for a while. I didn't know if you knew that. But Rolling Acres lived up to its name. There aren't many hills in central Kansas, but this golf course actually had a few. But the golf, the golf course wasn't very well maintained. Kansas is really, really hot and really, really dry. And that doesn't bode well for trying to keep a golf course green. So playing out at Rolling Acres, there's like way out in the middle of the country. There's nothing around except all of a sudden there's a golf course, right? When you play golf at Rolling Acres in the middle of the summer, it was kind of like playing golf on your 50-year-old, well-weathered, cracked, and heaving concrete driveway. That's what it was like. It was just brown, and you hit a ball. Like if, if you just barely hit the ball, it'd roll like 100 yards, right? It's amazing. But you'd, hesitate, you'd be very hesitant to take a divot. You would ruin your clubs, you know, if you hit the ground too hard. It was hard, never adequately watered, wide open, and really, really windy, all right? I know it's been windy here this last week. That's Kansas all the time, okay? And it was open to the public. It was a public course. And then there was the McPherson County Country Club, and it was private, and it was plush. <laughs> it had a steakhouse, it had a pool, it had massive old growth trees, and it was green as far as the eye could see. But the normal person couldn't play there. It was private. So there's public courses that my dad would go work at, and there are private courses that my dad would go work at. One of them was for everyone, and one was kind of for the elite of society and closed off to everyone else, and you couldn't go there unless you had some sort of membership. So that's my childhood story that I'm going to use to illustrate something later on today and especially next time corporately when we think about who we are as a church next time we're in this passage. So that was my story, but let me tell you the story that Mark tells in his gospel about some of these similar matters. It's in Mark chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 and we'll take two weeks to look at this. Turn with me if you can to Mark chapter 2 where we read about Jesus, and it says this, starting in verse 13, He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. 
Lord, I pray that you would add your blessing to all of us here now that is in this room, this facility, or those watching online, participating online, that you would add your blessing to those who read here and then follow and obey what this word is teaching us about who you are and what it's calling all of us to privately do, personally do, today and next time we're together when this passage of scripture, corporately, when we think about how we need to apply this passage as a church, as a whole, God, I pray that you would work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look. Let's look through the text. And we're going to apply this in a very, very personal way today. You've heard me allude to that. This is all about a personal application point today. Next time we're together, we're going to apply this publicly, corporately as a church. But today it's personal. Think about yourself today. And this is what the text says. Jesus, he, went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. So a few things we should observe in this first verse. I think that, my, that Mark writes, not Mike, Mark writes what he writes in a way to jog our memories a bit. Whenever we read that word again, it's used to imply that whatever is happening currently has happened before. And so when Mark says that Jesus went out again by the sea, we need to remember the other time that Jesus went out by the sea in the Gospel of Mark. And that first time we see Jesus going out by the Sea of Galilee was when he called the initial disciples to follow him. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He, he goes out and he calls them to follow him. And now Mark is going to say, look, Jesus is going out again. And I think this shows us something about our evangelism. It's not just one big one-time thing. Don't just go out once to see who might be receptive to the message in one big, massive evangelism attempt. Our evangelistic efforts must be done over and over again and over and over again over time. Jesus goes out again. Think about that great commission passage at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. A good way to translate that thought is this. As you are going, make disciples. So often we think about the great commission as going, right? Just go. No, it's not. The main verb in that commission is to make disciples. And we can obey that main verb as we go about our normal lives. As you go about your work. As you sign up your kids for Rebel Rec, soccer, whatever it's going to be. You're gonna, you sign up for that so that you can be in proximity to people so you can make disciples. As you go about your work, as you go about recreation, your social life, your private life, make disciples. What Jesus taught, he modeled. Mark says that he went out again by the sea and he was willing to teach the people that were coming to him. He took what he knew and he made it known to them. He taught the crowds. But he also extended one very personal invitation to one very unlikely individual. Look at verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. 
And he rose and he followed him. So Jesus is going about his business And as he does so, he extends an invitation to a guy named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He's a tax collector, and in the middle of his tax collecting session, he's sitting at the tax booth, he's working. In the middle of his shift, Jesus asked him to do what he asked other fishermen to do in the last chapter. He says, hey, why don't you follow me? So here's the question, who is Levi? Well, we read about his story in the Gospel of Luke as well, and Luke identifies this called individual as Levi. However, when we read this Gospel story in the Gospel of Matthew, he's identified as Matthew. So Mark calls him Levi, Luke calls him Levi. When Matthew writes his story, he's like, hey, 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 I'm Matthew, all right? I'm writing the story, let me name myself. I'm Matthew, Matthew Levi, it's the same guy. This guy had two names, Levi and Matthew. And this really isn't that strange in that part of the world at the time. Matthew is a Greek name and Levi is a Hebrew name. As a tax collector, Matthew worked for the Greek-speaking Romans. But he gathered taxes from Hebrew-speaking Jews. So there really isn't much that we should really read into this, this two-named individual. It happened a lot when Rome started to occupy the territory. And I don't think that we can read into that that much. But what we can read into is the explicit data of what we know of him being a tax collector. The gospel actually give us relatively little information about who Matthew was or what his personality was like. I know that we love the chosen, it's great. I'm not knocking it in any way, but they, they kind of give a perspective of who Matthew might have been. But the gospels really give us relatively little information about who Matthew was or what his personality was like. We don't know if he was socially awkward or potentially on some sort of spectrum. We just aren't given that information about any of that, but what we can know explicitly about Matthew and Levi is pretty limited, but this is what we can know for sure. He was a tax collector working for the Roman Empire. He had connections to, and he found companionship with other tax collectors and people known as sinners, or the outcasts, of the Jewish society. We also know that he was not very well liked by the Pharisees, most likely because he was seen as a traitor working for the foreign occupiers. And finally, we know that Matthew left his work for the Roman Empire on the spur of a moment to follow Jesus, which, in my mind, is incredibly impressive. Because there's no going back to that job if you burn that bridge. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they did leave their father in the boat to follow Jesus. But I'm sure that they were always welcome back to the family business if this Jesus Messiah thing didn't work out. In fact, we know that to be the case for them because at the end of the Gospel of John, we read Peter saying this, Hey, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. What else are we going to do? 
And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So some of the disciples, for lack of better words, had some sort of fallback plan. Matthew didn't. Levi didn't. If he walked away from that booth that day to follow Jesus, and this whole Jesus Messiah thing doesn't work out, there's no going back. He was already somebody who endured social isolation in order to make a buck and serve the Roman Empire. So if he turned his back on them, then he would not only be an outcast from his own people, but also from the people that took him in their employ. Like, this is massive. If Matthew slash Levi responded to the call of Jesus, it would be an all-in type of response. Every chip would be pushed into the center of the table along with every deed to every relationship they had ever had. He would have to potentially forfeit absolutely everything in order to follow Jesus. So no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind, with all this in his mind, Matthew hears Jesus' call to follow, and he decisively rises up, and he follows him. He was sitting, and then he rose up, and he left where he was at. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 14b, he responds to the call. He pushes it all in. He pulls the trigger. He abandons everything with no chance to go back. And he follows. So here's the one personal point of application. How about you? Have you done this? This call is being extended to you right now to do the same. Your name isn't Levi, and your dad's name isn't Alphaeus, but he knows your name. He knows everything about your lineage, even if you don't. I know some of you come from brokenness. He knows where you come from. He knows what you've been through. He knows the reason why you've made every decision that you have ever made in your life. Even the ones that might have left you lonely and isolated and estranged from the life that you really wanted to live. The freedom that sin promised never delivered and now you're entrapped. But all those things that he knows about you that may have driven every other person away from you and left you lonely and isolated, those things have not deterred him from calling out to you to be his follower today. He doesn't look at you and say, I know these things about you so I'm gonna pass you by. He sees those things and he's drawn to you because of them and says, hey, let me save you from that. You too can be my follower. To that I say, 
What grace! He knows how self-seeking and fraudulent you have been. Me too. He knows how dishonest you have been. Listen, he knows how dishonest you are even right now as you sit here pretending to be interested in spiritual things at a church gathering. You might fool everyone else here. You might even be fooling yourself, but you're not fooling the one who's all-knowing. And yet, and yet, he's still calling you. He's summoning you and saying, follow me. There was an urgency to Jesus' call to Matthew. And there's an urgency to the one that he's extending to you right now. As I function like his mouthpiece in this pulpit. This isn't Sean speaking. This is God speaking A radical response is expected from you. Maybe you've been around Jesus and Jesus' people for a long time now. But now is the time to respond. Your response is required. Responsiveness and responsiveness now. The place is here. The time is now. Like now, 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 don't delay this. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time that you need to repent and say five simple words. Yes, Lord, I will follow. That's what Matthew Levi does in the middle of his work shift. In no uncertain terms, God is telling you, right now, repent. Stop embracing your life of sin and rejecting Christ. Do the opposite. Embrace Christ and reject your enslavement to sin. Today, right now, if you're hearing him call, If your ears are ringing a bit, if you feel a blush coming on, or if you feel a shortness in your breath or a lump in your throat or a tingling in your spine, it's not because of butterflies in your stomach. It's the very Holy Spirit of God knocking at the door of your heart. Don't shut him out because you think he's obnoxious by making you feel things. Don't harden your heart toward him. Don't harden your heart toward his penetrating conviction. Make a decision to come to him. But you and only you can make that decision. And what I'm saying to you and what God is saying to you, do not delay that repentance. You and I are all in a dire situation. And we need to come to him and get the relief that our soul is begging to have come its way. So at the end of this service, we're going to have a response time. We're going to sing a final song. 
And as we do, there's going to be an invitation to respond to what we have heard. An invitation will be given to you to leave the comfort of your seat or your row. And you're going to be invited to come forward to these steps and kneel down and commune with God. I know that you can respond anywhere But Matthew stood up, he rose up, and he left where he was at. And you're like, well, I'm in the middle of my row, it's going to be awkward. It was pretty awkward for Matthew to leave the tax booth. Well, I got my kids with me, bring them. Well, I'm an elder of the church, come. I'm working sound booth, doesn't matter. Do not delay your repentance. And when we do this, when that open invitation is given for anyone and everyone, there will be two types of responses. Some will be coming to Christ for the first time. And some are going to be coming back to Christ for what seems like the thousandth. 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says this, My little children... I have written these things to you so that you may not sin. You're like, okay, great. But what if I do sin? He continues, says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. Big word, that means wrath-averting sacrifice. Wrath should be poured out on you. But if you confess your sins, it was poured out on Jesus instead. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's enough mercy to go around. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Look, all of us have dirt to confess. I don't care if you've been following Jesus your entire life. Or if you want to start following right now, we all have things that we need to confess to him. That dirt that needs to be cleansed from us. In fact, we might not even have enough space up here. Like we'll need to build a bigger stage if we have given ourselves to a moment of honesty. We must confess. That means to have the same word with God concerning a matter. We must come to him and humbly recognize, yep, I still need you. For the first time or for the thousandth time, I need your cleansing. Do you know that Jesus taught his disciples a model type of prayer for them to pray? And it included the words, forgive us our debts. This isn't just something you initially say to the Father. This is something that you say on a daily basis as determined by what you have done or by what you have failed to do. So we're approaching a time of response. But before we get there, I want to look at who in the text took advantage of this invitation and what happened to them after they did. What is the result of responding to that call of Jesus? Look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We see his response. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at table, table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners 
were reclining with Jesus' disciples, for there were many who followed him. Matthew starts following Jesus, and that following leads him to this. He's relaxed. He's reclined. He's at a position around a low-lying table where he can support his body weight with his left arm. His right arm is free to do what? Grab food. Enjoy it. He's fellowshipping with the one who is known as the bread of life. This, this is the depiction of the guy that was once hated and rejected, despised as a traitor by his own countrymen. This guy a few moments ago was a social outcast. He didn't belong. And now he's belonging in the most relaxed, welcomed, intimate way around a fellowship table with God himself. What's the difference? He was called by Jesus and he responded to the call. And it led him to this. He's relaxed, he's at ease, he's content, he's accepted, he's enjoying merriment with food and belonging to a group of people known as the disciples. Think about this, these disciples included the fishermen that he used to fraudulently extort money from so that he could line his own pockets. He's one of them now. Now all of a sudden they're dining together, relaxed, at ease, enjoying merriment with one another. Dining together, they're sharing a common meal in a common house together with the only commonality between them was their responsiveness to the authoritative call of Jesus for whom they had left everything. Don't tell me that following Jesus doesn't make that much of a difference. The response to the call of Jesus changed absolutely everything. Everything. And look what Mark says. It's not a throwaway comment at the end of verse 15. It says, there were many who followed him. Many had taken advantage of this. Many had pushed all their chips in, and as a result were like this, relaxed, at ease, content, carefree, taken care of, belonging. Once known for being notorious, now completely accepted. Wow. Mark says that many people recognized their need for him and so they responded to the call and they followed and they reclined and they reaped the benefits of having made the decision to follow him. Here's the question, is that you? Are you counted among them? 
if Mark were retelling the story today, would you be reclining around that table at ease, relaxed, accepted, attached to the one person that absolutely matters for all of eternity, Jesus? Would your name be on that list of people that have RSVP'd for the wedding feast of the Lamb that's to come? A lot of us in this room have already RSVP'd. Some of you need to respond. And some of you need to respond right now. And some of you need to get ready for that. And you need to come back to Jesus for the thousandth time and say, hey, I still need to confess. This is that time. Jesus invited the most despised people to come to him. Don't take offense to that. You might be well-liked by the people around you, but only you know how dark you are inside. Everyone else might esteem you, but internally you probably despise yourself because you know yourself, and yet he's calling you. God takes great pleasure in renewing that which was once ruined. And he says, come. God, I pray that as we move into this time of response, that you would do the work that only you can do. God, I'm not trying to manipulate things through music. I'm not trying to do anything that is outside of what I sense the passage is calling us to do corporately and personally. God, I'm sensing that you are working in my life. If I wasn't playing guitar, I'd be right there on the front step too. God, I pray for a massive time of response and a moment of honesty that we would give ourselves to so that you could do only that which you can do. You're extending a call. You've extended a call. And some need to come for the first time and some need to come once again and say, I still absolutely need you. And God, I pray for your spirit to work now in these moments. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Stand up.